Hey, it's Agrita Jandrao, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for revolutionary healing of self and community that can allow us to outgrow cultures of scarcity and hyper-individualism so that we can move to more caring and regenerative ways of living and working in community. In this episode, we welcome back the lovely Samantha McKay to the podcast to build on the previous episode on the Enneagram and personality mapping, focusing on a very complex but integral part of the tool, paradoxes. You know, life is filled with paradoxes. And I think one of the challenges is really starting to see when we're stuck in a paradox and being able to work with it. I think that happens the most when we are complaining or saying how frustrated we are about a situation, how that situation never changes. And yet the situation is changing, we're not changing. And so when we can see the set of beliefs we're stuck in that we think are opposite, um, but might not actually be opposite, that we can find a way for those beliefs to work together, we can start to open up or expand our awareness for what's happening in the situation. Samantha is a personal development coach at Individuo, incorporating the Enneagram into her integrative approach to inner work. On her multi-year journey of recovery, Samantha has learned that some treatments act like a short-term band-aid and others provide more permanent healing. She incorporates the Enneagram into her work for this very reason. It helps us invest our time, energy and resources into inner work that provides true relief. Hi, Samantha. Welcome back to the show. I'm so happy that you're here so soon after our previous episode. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm uh, super excited for this very fascinating topic we have today. Before we begin the conversation, I would love if we could just take a few deep breaths together. Absolutely. So to begin this exercise, we'll first close our eyes. I think today's breathing exercise, we're really going to focus on showing gratitude to ourselves, but also this moment that is allowing us to really slow down and allow ourselves to witness the energies that are going around us and within us as well, but also just the importance of bringing about calm in your life and understanding that slowing down is is not a privilege is a necessity and we all require it this breathing exercise instead of focusing on a particular area of your body that perhaps has been feeling the tension or feeling a particular emotion very intensely i would like to just focus on how we can relax in this moment, how we can allow our bodies to relax and then slowly and gradually move on to focusing on our breathing. So first of all, I'd like you to just roll back your shoulders gradually. Really push them back. Allow them to just drop. If, like me, you sometimes feel that your jaw is clenched when, I guess, in the day-to-day, but also during stressful periods of your life, just try to unlock your jaw and really just relax it. If you've cupped your hands together or in whatever sort of position your hands are in right now, just allow them to sort of loosen up. Allow your fingers to also just relax, loosen up. If you're sitting on a chair right now, allow your feet to gently relax. Try not to put too much pressure on them. If you've crossed your legs right now, then try to relax them, loosen up a bit. 
as much as possible. Just feel the body slowing down. Now we're going to place one of our hands on our tummy or our heart before we begin to take deep breaths together. And again, just try noticing how as you're putting your hand on your heart or your tummy, just noticing how the body is really just releasing itself from any of the tensions and the worries of the day or the week. We're going to take five deep breaths together, but please do feel free to pause the recording and take as many deep breaths as you wish. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and release. Take a deep breath out. Now in your own time, when if you're ready, gently open your eyes. Thank you again, Samantha, for joining that with us today. Thank you. So I would recommend listeners that if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you do listen to that before this one. I think that would be a really good insight into the Enneagram and how it can help us adults in particular, not just map out our personality, but also understand the sort of patterns and behaviors that we've internalized, how they are connected to certain parts of our histories, whether that's for chronic illness or trauma. So I really do recommend you listen to that episode before tuning into this one if you haven't. But just to give a sort of recap to the previous episode and also to the Enneagram, it would be amazing, Samantha, if you could just begin by just giving our audience a bit of a recap to bring back some of the knowledge that we got to receive from you. Yes, the Enneagram is just such a fascinating tool and it has so many layers. Um, and so we obviously won't be covering all of them or even really scratching the surface, but um, it really is this this really wonderful tool. So the Enneagram is a psycho-spiritual tool for development. And what that means is it helps us understand the psychological and spiritual work we can do um, while we're sort of spending time on on this planet. And so how do we almost use it as a guide for for growing up and maturing? And the Enneagram has been around for a very long time, but it really started to get more fleshed out and expanded on in the late 20th century with various psychologists starting to use it and obviously becoming more commonly known, um, especially in the last five years, particularly for the typology aspect of it. So most people think, well, with the Enneagram, there's nine personality types. And yet that's really just only the surface level of what the Enneagram offers. Um, but it, it is the window from which we start to understand it. So the Enneagram is represented by this symbol um, that is a circle. Um, and inside that circle is a triangle and a hexad. And a hexad is the, the sort of seven sort of points that go around the circle. The circle represents unity and wholeness. 
and the triangle represents change and transformation and the hexad represents a sort of a process. I'm not going to get into that today, but Mm -hmm. just so you know, it, it, it has meaning. The triangle and the hexad create nine points on the circle and we give those those points numbers one through nine and that represents a archetypal pattern of thoughts and feelings and behaviors through which we can start to see ourselves and see this way that we're operating. Now, there's a bit of like uh, language to help us understand this. So wings are often referred to as the numbers on each side of the number. So if you're a type nine, your wings would be type eight and type one because they're the two numbers adjacent to that. And then arrows are represented by the lines in the circle and the two lines each your number is connected to. So again, if you're a type nine, you're connected to type six or 0.6 and 0.3. And what those mean is that those numbers contain insights and wisdom that you can connect to to help you with your personal development journey. Um, So while all the types can help, those access points often contain more relevant and applicable wisdom and practices to help you sort of break out of the the archetypal pattern that you're stuck in. So that's the first layer. The other thing to think about is the Enneagram isn't the 2D flat model that we see it is. It's actually a 3D model. So imagine that circle as a sphere and the triangle is now both ups and down. So you could have this double pyramid inside and it's in motion. And that represents the fact that we are always in motion. We're always, you know, evolving or devolving. We're never really static. Mm -hmm. We're always moving. And so that movement can be within your own type. It can be along the lines. It can be around the circle. And so it's just to represent that it is this complex, multi-layered, in-motion system because we as humans, you know, we're we're in motion constantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So would you say that even though you are assigned a type within the Enneagram, you are essentially moving within this sphere or can you sort of have that sort of overlap, do you think? So you're only ever one type at a time. You know, you don't change types, you're one type and that's your lifelong challenge. But you, yes, depending on how much stress or what's the environment or what's going on, if you need extra resources because your current because the tools associated with your, you know, primary defense mechanism, if they're not working, then you're going to reach out, your psychology, your psyche is going to reach out along those lines for more resources, mm. you know. And so I'm a type seven, which means my primary resource is to make things fun or to lighten things up. And that can look like, you know, making jokes or reframing everything as positive. But if that's not working, I can reach out to point five, which is about withdrawing and becoming introverted and hiding from the world oh okay yeah um or the the seven can also reach out to point one which is about becoming more structured and um and more rigid and more rule following now there's a whole lot of elements there so i'm just picking a few at random but yeah there's always more resources to find but i think it's it's important to remember that most of the time we're usually going there unconsciously and in an unhealthy way and you can go there consciously in a healthy way without knowing the Enneagram because in life we do get, you know, we do face challenges and we, you know, there are times when we think, well, this strategy isn't working. What is a way that might work that's going to be better for me? And so we can discover some of those insights without the Enneagram. Now that I know the Enneagram, I think it's, you can just leverage it more effectively. Um, so yes, we, you know, evolving or devolving and you can reach out, you know, consciously for something that's going to help you more. Um, but we're often reaching out unconsciously for just more coping strategies. Okay. Would you say that the goal is essentially to focus on your own resources rather than requiring to reach out to the resources of different types? Is, is that the sort of goal that we're working towards? The goal is with our, you know, adult development and our growth is to be able to give ourselves more choices and to expand into seeing the world and the situations that that face us in different ways and to be able to not react uh, to them, to challenges in the way we might normally. And so we're able to pause and consider what might be, what reaction is going to create the outcome that I ultimately want. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and so if our default position is to react with anger, well, that might undermine what we're trying to achieve in our relationships. Now, anger is, you know, is neither good nor bad. Obviously, anger gets a bad rap and anger can be very positive. Yeah. Um, it's important for setting boundaries and our personal power and letting people know when our values are crossed. But there are healthier and unhealthier ways to express or use that anger to order and to achieve our goals. And that's the same with any emotion, fear, sadness, happiness. Um, I think it's really interesting that some types use happiness defensively. And so while we're, we're in a society that says, happy, you know, let's strive for happiness, for some types, that's actually we need to help them get away from using happiness defensively. Um, and so it's important to see that any emotion or any reaction can be used in an unhealthy way as a coping strategy. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think just in terms of like the topic today, paradoxes fit into this. So how do you define a paradox within the context of personality typing and using the Enneagram? What does a paradox mean within the tool? Mm. So when I use the word personality, I'm also referring to the word ego. And so personality is a mask that we wear. It is not who we are. We exist underneath the mask. And there's actually very, there's actually quite a lot of masks. So we're sort of deep down, but we are there. Um, it's just that it's expressed through this rigid personality. And that exists for a reason. It is a defensive structure to help us cope with the challenges of life. Obviously, we that sort of came into place through our childhood. We have to build an ego. It's very important to build an ego as a child, so we don't want to skip that step. And it's built to protect us from the things we can't understand or process. So when we're emotionally hurt or when we're confused or we don't understand what our parents are doing and we don't have the emotional, uh, mental capacity, we don't have the ability to communicate, we can't express ourselves, we can't ask for what we need, our psyche has built ways to cope with that pain in order so we can stay in connection with our caregivers. And that's very important for a child. Their sole purpose is to survive no matter what that home environment is like. But when we get to adulthood, you know, to 25 years plus and our brains are fully formed and we have more emotional resources, financial resources, we can think more clearly and strategically, you know, we don't have to rely on other people as our caregivers. So when we have that capacity, when we shift into that state, we then can, in theory, we don't need that ego anymore. We don't need those defenses. And yet it's such a well-built structure that it continues to exist in a way that we've forgotten that it's there. And it continues to protect us from all those hurts and wounds and pains that can, that are still there. And what we see in adulthood is that when something happens that's particularly similar or triggers, you know, touches on a wound from childhood, we react very defensively. Mm-hmm. And that defensiveness will look you know, like one of the nine types in some way. And it's starting to then learn how to see ourselves in that. And so the where the paradox comes in is that we are all searching for something. We're all searching for that love we didn't get as a child. You know, we're all searching for that in some way. And what happens though, unfortunately, is the way the ego is structured, the way our personality works, is that even though we're actively trying to seek that thing, we're undermining our ability to get it at the same time through the personality strategies. And so when we're in personality, the very act of trying to get the thing we want, the way we're trying to do it, you know, the how we're trying to do it is keeping us from, from the very thing we want. And so, yeah, it's, it's a trap or a paradox that we have to learn to start to see in action because it's very unconscious. This is this is not, um, you know, an introduction to the NRM. This is something that is a more complex topic and holding the nuance of what the personality's role is. And most of us will never really see this thing for ourselves with, unless we've got a lot of self-reflection and introspection going on because this is what the Enneagram reveals. It reveals and it gives us language for these things that are almost so intangible, we just can't even hold on to them to see them. Yeah. Before this episode, we talked a bit about the concept of paradoxes. And one thing you mentioned was chasing something in a way that ends up pushing that thing away further from us, right? I think the way that certain people, or I think most of us, the way we try to strive for something, it 
tends to kind of push us away from it further because the energy that we're sort of radiating to that thing or that person or whatever it is we really want to get is it's just not compatible in some way so i think that makes a lot of sense when we're talking about paradoxes here so how does the enneagram help us in identifying that what we are doing to get somewhere or to get to an end goal is not working out for us in fact is pushing us away from that mm. So once we find our type on the Enneagram and that for some people that can take a while and that's where it, it can be helpful to understand the the subtypes, the 27 subtypes, um, because we can all, we can behave in similar ways, but for very different motivations. And sometimes, you know, there are a lot of lookalike types are so going into that deeper level. The subtype can really help us figure out what that motivation is. And once we've found that and we can start to see that in action with ourselves, the Enneagram then shows us or gives us, you know, tools and practices and pathways to help us start to loosen that egos or that personality's grip on us. And that's in shorthand, um, learning how to do the opposite of what our ego asks for. And you can't jump into that immediately because the ego is a defensive system. And you know what happens when, you know, very strong defensive systems are triggered, they, they overreact. And so it's taking that journey of, of slowly building the capacity to stay with uncomfortable feelings, sensations, and thoughts for longer. And as we do that, the defensive system doesn't need to be quite so tightly wound. And so then when with, we've got more you know, capacity for inner resilience, we can then go and tend to those underlying wounds or traumas or unmet needs. And when we can do that, we then ease the pressure within our system. And so you build capacity to heal what's underneath and you sort of just repeat that process. And when you layer in the Enneagram, you you get these clues as to the kind of work that you need to be doing to build that capacity that's going to be more effective for you. And also the kind of sort of unmet needs or traumas or wounds that you're looking for underneath. To sort of paint a picture on what a paradox can look like in our day to day, is it okay if you could give us some examples for each type? So what certain types of sort of paradoxes that they have to try to overcome? I think that'll be helpful for the listeners to get a sense of what a paradox can look like in our day-to-day -day and how we can begin to identify it. Yeah, I think that's a great idea because sometimes it's hard to understand things <laughs> unless it's in practice. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's start with the type ones and their paradox or trap could be sort of described as, I can only relax when things are perfect. Um, and the challenge is things are never perfect. And so then the ones never get to relax. And so they're striving for this impossible thing. And so for ones, it's about learning how to accept imperfection and so you can relax sooner. So ones um, had this childhood experience of often needing to be very responsible. Um, so they may have had a chaotic family home or a parent who wasn't able to um, be in charge effectively or some other need um, or requirement there. Um, and so a friend of mine is um, the daughter of immigrants and they didn't speak the language. So as from a very young age, she had to step up and be sort of the responsible parent in order to make sure things went well for the family. And so she took on that mm -hmm. responsible, you yeah. know, adulting type role from a very young age. And so ones tend to be very like hardworking and very disciplined and very much following the rules. And um, that also can mean they can be quite critical and inflexible. And even when they're helping others, that can sound critical to other people. And that can, you know, the ones can find that confusing because to them, when all the rules are being followed and when everything is lined up and as it should be, then that's better for everyone. And therefore, you know, everyone can relax and everyone can be safe. That's just not the case because life is this imperfect thing. Mm -hmm. So essentially, they're striving for order all the time when sometimes I think there is a beauty in chaos as well and a lot of new opportunities can arise from sort of mess right and that can be really challenging for ones yeah so there's they can be striving for order and perfection either within themselves mm -hmm. or in the outer world or they can just sort of model and be perfect um an example again from this friend of mine she was teaching us the right way to pour milk out of a Tetra pack. <laughs> now, most of us uh, 
take the opening and have it closest to the mug and we pour milk and there's always some sloppage, always. Yeah. Uh, but the right way to pour it is to have the the opening away from the mug because when you pour it in, you've got more control and there's no spillage. Mm. Now, I've never adopted that. I know this is the right way to do it. I've been informed and I still do it the wrong way. And so one's really, really figured out what is the right way to do things and then they will often teach that to other people. But there are, you know, there are ones in all varieties, but there is, as you say, some sort of order to be created in some form. So some of the ways that ones can start to notice themselves in this trap or this paradox is just to, to notice, they can notice their inner critic. Ones are often known for having a very harsh inner critic and starting just to see what it's saying and to not necessarily take everything at face value. They can start to notice um, their perspectives on right and wrong and just you know what that looks like. And they can start to notice how much tension um, they're holding in their body and how much resentment and what that sort of um, feels like for them and those sensations. And it can also be really helpful for them to start noticing what is working um, and what is going well and what's positive in the world around them and just make more time for fun and relaxing and play um, and just seeing how they react and respond to it. Yeah, that. I could somehow relate to it in the, in that sense. So I am a daughter of immigrant parents. I am a immigrant myself. And I do realize that sometimes I sort of impose my understandings of order and um, rules onto my family or to other people. Like, you know, this is, this is the right way to do it. Or, and I can see either by their reactions or just, after that sort of interaction that oh okay that is probably not the right way to um approach these things and there is no right way right in that in that sense and I think the beauty really lies in embracing sort of diversity in the ways that people carry out their lives right and their sort of opinions and their worldviews and I've started to embrace that diversity more rather than try to sort of fit in and sort of follow a particular pattern of order. So I I totally relate to that. And yet at the same time, I can see you're not attached to this particular way of seeing the world. And so I would say that you're probably not a one because for you, there is more flexibility in there. Now, I don't know your type and I'm not going to type you in this process, but I think the point I want to make is we can find other people's worldviews very confusing because they can be so different. You know, mm -hmm. with with my friend, I sometimes, you know, like, oh, you're so rigid about this. And I, you know, part of me doesn't understand that rigidity because I am not that type and that's not important to me. And so it's useful to take what we learn from this to help us be more compassionate for people of each type and how they're, because we're each struggling with something as we navigate the world. So what can the paradox for type two look like if we're moving along the types? Mm, so type two uh, focuses on being liked or being likable. And so they do that in order to stay in relationship with people and to have their needs taken care of in some way. Mm -hmm. But what they don't realize is it's very strategic. They're, they're giving to get. And so the more twos try to be likable, the more resentful they actually feel when their needs aren't taken care of. So for twos, they make people like them by being less like themselves. So they'll tend to be accommodating or they won't show anger or they'll be very smiling. They're very tuned into other people's feelings and needs. And once they sense that need, they want to fulfill it, um, whether the other person wants them to or not. And for twos, that, that selflessness um, helps them feel like they're being liked or appreciated and therefore they will be sort of looked after and taken care of in return. But the more disconnected they are from themselves and their own needs, it's much harder for them to just be, you know, authentic in relationship. Mm -hmm. And so they want to be in an authentic relationship, but the more they shape shift into becoming what the other person likes, the less connected they are to themselves. So would you say that's more like a people-pleasing mindset? Yeah, it can be. Although they wouldn't think necessarily think of it that way. Yeah. They can very much sugarcoat what they're saying in order to avoid upsetting someone. I think that can also link back to perhaps abandonment as a child or growing up and not perhaps receiving the sort of care that they needed at that time. 
And so this pattern in a way could be them trying to sort of get back that care, except they're providing that. No, absolutely. Yeah. So twos, it's sort of that age of development where they realize their parents have other interests. So most of your childhood is um, the child is central. My parents just take care of me. They don't, you know, it takes a while for the, firstly, for the child to see themselves as a separate being and then to start to see the adults as having their own identity and interests. And the two is sort of at that stage where they're like, well, I've got friends that I want to play with, but I can see that, you know, I'm also not necessarily going to be my parents. My parents, you know, what do I do about the relationship with them? And so they feel torn between how do they maintain all these relationships and often do so by, you know, finding ways to be likable and, and pleasing. And there are varieties. And so I want to make sure we don't, because one of the um, ways twos get mistyped is by thinking that they're the doormat or they're the helper. Because there is one version of two that is the femme fatale or the Don Juan, who's sort of very sort of attractive. There's another version who is like uh, a very strong, ambitious leader. And then there's another version who's more hesitant and fearful about connection. And they can both appear very competent and very helpless, you know, in very close succession to each other. And so there are these varieties of two, but underneath there is this strategically giving to get piece that twos are often oblivious to because there is this desire. The ego says, let's helping other people is, is selfless. It's empathic. It's the only way to go about life. I think that can be quite difficult to accept because I would say helping in itself is a reciprocal act in the sense that whenever you do help out or whenever you do give, you will receive that in some way. So to have that expectation is normal. But then if that's becoming something that you are maybe even subconsciously looking out for and thus becoming a sort of unhealthy habit, then I guess that's the problem. But I think there is a fine line between that. Because to feel good about helping is, I think that's that's not exactly, you know, you wanting something out of that interaction or out of that relationship in, the, in that way. But then if you are thinking, okay, well, I do need yeah. to help someone, but then I also expect them to help me back in the same way and, you know, with the same energy. Yeah, I think that can be difficult. Yeah, it's really challenging. Mm-hmm. Mm. Because twos often feel good about helping. And that shows that they're in personality. Exactly. You know, that is the defense at work. So yeah, it's re- that's really tricky. So for twos, it's about getting in touch with their own needs. So spending time alone, um, away from people and asking themselves, what do I need? What am I feeling? Um, and then practicing asking for that directly and being really upfront that this is what I need um, rather than trying to sort of sugarcoat or create a situation where someone will do that for you. So these these roundabout indirect ways. So it's really trying to be more upfront and trying to notice yourself when you're giving to get that strategic side and when you're not just trying to see the difference within yourself, what that looks like, what that feels like, and what are the situations where that strategic side is showing up more often. So threes? Yes. Yeah. Threes are that stage of development, which is similar to what I mentioned with the twos, is that they've realized their parents have other interests. And so they start performing or showing off as a way to get their parents' attention. And so what that looks like in adulthood is trying to be successful in some way in order to be rewarded, to be loved, and you know to be wanted. And so threes also shapeshift, but they shapeshift into images of success or reward. And they also lose track um, and disconnect from what they are, like what they like, what they value, um, and who they are underneath. So you could almost say that that paradox is um, if I'm valued by others, then I am valuable, you know, sort of get that stuck in that sort of space. And so, yeah, they tend to be very like confident, results oriented, success focused. They can be workaholics. And what's what's really interesting here is they are one of the most emotional types on the Enneagram. And yet a lot of people would see them as lacking sincerity or empathy because what they're doing is they're pushing all of those emotions down or aside. They're never fully disconnected from them, but they're setting them aside because they believe falsely that they'll get in the way of them being successful, of working productively and efficiently and to avoid failure. And so things for threes is to get in touch with those feelings and start to see how they enhance their relationships, you know, to other people. Um, what often happens with threes is when they're working too hard, they either end up getting, 
you know, divorce, their marriages, their relationships fall apart and their kids don't know them because they're never at home or they end up in hospital after having a heart attack. And those are the two sort of main events that causes threes to sort of reevaluate their life because up until then, slowing down feels like death or dying. And that's really a hard thing to sort of, for the ego and for our psyche sort of to contemplate. Yeah. I've never come across this personality or I, yeah, it's a very, it's a very different sort of uh, mindset, I think, working to be that successful so that you can, you know, I guess in that way, you can get that validation from people that perhaps didn't give it to you when you were younger or when you, when you required it, when you weren't perhaps as successful. Mm. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So for threes, it's taking time to get to know themselves. What do they like and dislike? What do they value? Um, who are they when they're not shifting into someone, you know, another model of success and even understanding what that role model of success that they're shifting into. Um, and then, yeah, trying to avoid over identifying with your work, learning to slow down. And it'd be really useful to, um, for threes to start to think about the risks of their current lifestyle. You know, so what do they need to fear will happen if they don't change the way they're currently approaching life? And again, there are very different types of threes. And so they don't, you know, we might imagine the three I've described as like the shiny car, corner office, sharp suit type of person, but there's actually a very ethical, excellence sort of driven three. And then there's a, I want others to be successful sort of three. And so there is a variety within there, but there's sort of some some key themes that that connect them all. So type fours. So again, this is another heart type. These are relationship type. The twos, threes, and fours all see themselves in their relationships in some way. And so they sort of need to be in relationship in order to understand themselves in some in some form. Now the fours don't shape shift as much as the twos and threes do. And they sort of have a strong connection to trying to be as authentic and live as authentically as possible. But what their paradox or struggle or trap is, is that they believe themselves to be misunderstood. So they want to be understood, but they believe themselves to be so different and so lacking that no one can ever understand them. And so they find themselves pulling people towards them. But when they get too close, they also push them away. Um, and so, yeah, they, they, they really want to be in authentic relationships, but because they truly believe they are lacking and misunderstood that they you know, push people away at the same time. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I can relate to that. There are certain points in my life where I even think quite recently where I've been undergoing quite a lot of, um, there've been quite a lot of awakenings, I think, within this particular time. And yeah, sometimes it feels as if people don't understand or people are not at the same sort of stage of healing as you are. So they won't understand, or at least that's sometimes the sort of mindset I'm in that, you know, no one, no one is at where I am at. So then they can't understand. Sometimes all you do need is just to communicate what you are feeling. And whenever I do communicate whatever I'm feeling at that point to my loved ones and yeah, it just changes everything. I then realize, oh, okay, wait, there are people here that want to listen to me, that want to understand where I am. And that's something I've been trying to work on. Mm. So fours tend to feel their emotions very intensely. Mm. And so they amplify their emotions by attaching a story to them. Yeah, And so they almost swim inside their own emotions. And so one thing that they need to learn is to let go of the emotions. Um, And so fours sort of believe, I f- you know, because I feel I am, they sort of, you know, ident- over identify with their feelings. And that sort of leads mm-hmm. to this feeling of being special and being unique and being different and misunderstood in some way. And so what fours need to learn to do is to let go of their feelings um, and to realize they don't actually need to stay around as long as they do in order to process them. And because they tend to focus on what's missing, uh, it really helps if they start to focus on what's present in in the present moment, what's positive Mm -hmm. um, in themselves and within other people, and really to appreciate the ordinariness of, you know, the everyday world and not just focus on the th- you know, what's extraordinary or, or special or unique in some way. Mm-hmm. Just thinking back to the previous episode where we were talking about how we can begin to, you know, sort of pick out the sorts of practices um, and the cycles that we get into because of the traumas that we've experienced. 
and how we can actually just focus on the everyday, right? So on the practices um, or the activities that we just do, sometimes subconsciously, we don't really give much thought into them. Actually giving importance to them rather than thinking about the sort of deeper work that we do need to do. I think that not only just alleviates you from the pressure of healing work in itself, but it also helps you value the day-to-day, right? I think that's just so important and we definitely tend to downplay that, that healing needs to be this sort of magical experience. Um, you know, it needs to be something really big when in fact it does start from the small everyday mm. sort of life that we're living that we have. So yeah, I think that's just so important. Mm, yeah, the small moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we're moving into the the head types, the five, sixes, and sevens, and they all fear something. And that fear of thing keeps them from the thing they really want. And they get stuck in this sort of fear trap. Now, they don't necessarily realize they're afraid of things, but that's sort of the underlying thing. So fives, it's a fear of feelings. And so the trap they fall into, we could say, you know, scarcity breeds scarcity or the fear of depletion um, is itself depleting because in childhood, fives had this experience of either being neglected or emotionally overwhelmed by other people's drama. And so in order to give themselves some space, they often withdraw um, into a private world in some way. So they can look aloof and withdrawn and detached and analytical. And so they don't appear to other people as people who want connection. And yet they desperately want connection. They're very, very sensitive to connection. And so they can feel warm and passionate about something, but it just won't appear externally. Because they sort of have this belief that, you know, people drain me and so therefore I can only take people in small doses and I need to keep my feelings compartmentalized and only experience those in very contained uh, ways. And so what happens for fives is that, you know, these sort of strategies keep people at a distance. And so what fives need to learn is actually people can be energizing. Time with people does not have to be draining. And so it's learning how to start to realize that and to appreciate we can get energy from other people. It's not always a, you know, mm-hmm. there we live in a world of abundance, but five see scarcity. And so it's starting for them to sort of start to see that abundance instead of just the scarcity. And so they do that by starting to connect with and express their feelings more openly, to engage more than withdraw, and to interact with, our, with others without worrying about having all the information. So fives tend to focus on... um having information and data as a way to interact with others. And it's just learning just to be present with whatever comes up. So in terms of scarcity, are they worried about perhaps time or having to share out their resources? There's definitely a hoarding element of time and energy and space. Yeah. Depending on which type of five it is, it's, you know, it's a different type of thing. But they fives often sort of it's, you know, the metaphor we use is the the fives wake up in the morning and know just how much energy they have for the day. And then they figure out exactly how they want to spend it. And once they're done, they're done. Okay. And so for fives, it's learning actually, you know, you can regenerate that, refill that mm-hmm. tank in different ways. But what fives do is they control the agenda. So if they're going to go hang out with someone. They're going to almost dictate the terms of what that's going to look like. Oh, okay. You know, mm. where are we going to, you know, where are we going to go? How long are we going to go for? What's going to happen? I, I think I had, you know, coffee the other day with a five and it was at Sunday brunch time. And so I'd made the assumption that if you're booking time to catch up at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, that that means we're, we're brunching. But no, we were not brunching. She had already eaten <laughs> uh, and she was happy to go wherever. She, she was only coming for a beverage. And then after our allotted time had sort of finished, she just went and jumped on a bus and went home. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and it was really interesting to see what she was controlling. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was controlling it in order to go with the flow on, my, on where I wanted to go. Because, you know, I had a thousand ideas. We could go here and here and here. But for me, if I'd known we were just doing drinks, I would have made an entirely different plan. And so it was just interesting to see that control side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I had forgotten that she was a five. And so I probably would have done things a little bit differently if I'd known that, if I remembered that in advance. Mm, yeah. It's very interesting. Mm, yeah. No, it really, it really is. Okay. So sixes. 
have a fear of being. So being in their own authority, um, being in their own competence. And so they're often looking for an authority figure to follow in some way. So that means there's three types of sixes. There is the six who um, wants to have a group of friends as their authority and to keep them safe, but they're very questioning and doubtful and often look very anxious. There is the six that has a an authority figure that they follow quite rigidly, and so they can look very certain and very responsible and analytical and you know in that way. And then you have the six that is just takes the offense over the defense, and so they are you know really risk takers and assertive and you know outwardly rebellious about things. And so we have these three reactions to fear of being in different ways, but all of the the sixes focus on trying to anticipate things that will go wrong. You know, so we talk about that, you know, worst case scenario, worrying, um, imagining scenarios piece. Yeah. And so what that means is they're always on the lookout for danger. But if you're always on the lookout for danger, you always find danger. You always find what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these sixes desperately want to feel safe, but they're never looking for safety. They're looking for danger and trying to plan for safety but they don't necessarily ever get to feel that safety. It's sort of putting out the energy that perhaps you don't want to receive back, but because it is so intense in some way that ends up being drawn back to you. I mean, I think there are some practices of manifestation, for example, that people tend to use in a positive way, but I think it can also backfire if we are talking about about this type. Mm. And so when you mentioned this, that's, that's sort of the first thing that came up in my mind. Like you don't want to obviously be within that dangerous situation or you want to be alert to those dangers when in fact you are inviting them. Mm. And I think that applies for all types is you find what you're looking for, you know, in that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. So sixes need to learn to trust themselves to come into their own authority. And they can do that by making a list of their strengths and competencies and reminding themselves of those every day. And they also need to look for what's going well, what's going right, what's working, what's positive. And, you know, a gratitude journal can be really great here for sixes to sort of start focusing on those sort of pieces. And the other thing that can be really useful is to pause and see what's real and what's imagined um, in the fears and risks you've identified, because a lot of it will be imagined. There's, you know, mm-hmm. There are some fears that are real. They are there. But so for six, it's learning to identify the difference between the two. And that can, you know, it's a bit of practice involved in that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sevens. Um, so sevens fear suffering. Um, and so they they sort of think, well, I'm going to do everything to avoid suffering. The suffering can be boredom. It can be feeling limited in some way. It can be emotions like sadness or grief. And it's the, how do I avoid suffering? And the challenge is the more you avoid suffering, the more you create suffering for yourself. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so the more you try to avoid your sadness, uh, the more it just builds up and waits for you. You know, it doesn't go away. And so um, sevens need to learn to realize that actually suffering isn't endless. Mm-hmm. If you just, if you can just stay with the dark emotions, they actually pass quite quickly. You know, they don't, they're not forever. Um, but the more you wait to get to the, you know, the more you suffer in the process. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. So sevens tend to be very spontaneous, very, you know, they can be very charming and very playful. Um, and always looking for, you know, the ways to be optimistic and to lighten the mood. And they might make a joke or they'll reframe things. And it's really them just trying to like avoid the negative. So I'm a seven and I was with a friend for coffee uh, several months ago and she was worrying, she was a type one, she was worrying that she was going to be made redundant soon. And I thought, oh, well, what a great idea. You'll get, you know, you'll get a payout, you'll get time to work on your academic writing, you know, how how wonderful, you know, there's some real upsides to this. No, that's not exactly what I said, but I said, oh, well, that's that could be a really good opportunity. And that's not really what she needed or wanted to hear at that time. You know, um, a four may have said, I can imagine how worrying or how that must be weighing on you or, you know, how, you, you know, or a one might have said, well, let's check the rules and see if they can do that. You know, let's, let's check the requirements. <laughs> and so 
I find it fascinating when I caught myself, this is the first time I really caught myself doing this reframing, optimizing piece. Because yeah, I knew it was an awful situation. I've been through a redundancy. I know how sad and uncomfortable and confusing and angry and all of those things are. And so in my mind, I wasn't denying the awful part. I was just going, well, why feel bad about it? You know, there's got to be some good to come out of this. And it was really interesting to think how each type would have responded to that scenario differently. Do you think that you are a bit more solution focused in that way? That's something that you've experienced? I, it, I think it could sound like that. Like, I think it could sound like being solutions focused. One thing my particular type has to learn is to listen more mm-hmm. um, and to get in touch with our feelings more, uh, you know, learning to sense them and talk about them and label them and all those sort of things. And I don't think all sevens are necessarily solutions focused in that way. But because we're trying to avoid the uncomfortable feeling, yeah, you know, I think some sevens would make a joke about it. My version is, you know, let's look for the practical outcome here, you know, is it's a little more tactical or strategic, so which could sound definitely solutions focused. But yeah, I think some sevens would be like, let's have a party. Let's celebrate. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. You know? Let's make a comedy special about it. And so each seven has their own flavor. Yeah. I love how the Enneagram is making space for that complexity within each type because, of course, there's so much diversity and I would say personality in itself is a spectrum. So within the type, you have so much variety. And I think that is so important. Yeah, I recently met someone of a similar age, um, obviously a different gender, but of the exact same type as me. Um, same sequence and everything. And what was interesting is he, you know, he grew up in, in middle America and I really expected us to be more similar in how we were coming into things. And when he talked, I could see we'd learnt the same lessons and what he was saying really resonated with me, but our path and our journey and our presentation and our approach to personal development was entirely different. You know, Mm. we'd worked on different things. Um, we'd taken different paths. And I think that surprised me. I thought we'd be more similar. But no, because those patterns are shaped by our childhood experiences, our family culture, our social culture, you know, what life is happening around us. Yeah, of course. All right. Eights. We're almost there. So eights are about being strong um, and they're often great protectors and they're very assertive and they stand up for injustice and it's very important for them to protect the innocent in some way, which means they're often very direct and assertive they can be very excessive and they have this really big energy. They don't necessarily realize that they have this really big energy for them. It just feels like energy for others. That energy can feel very intimidating and overwhelming and it can feel to other types like anger, even though that's not how the eights experience it. So what's happening for the eight, the paradox here is that staying strong creates weakness. Avoiding vulnerability leaves you vulnerable. And always being assertive leaves no space for softness because what's inside of the eight is a very, very soft, innocent, uh, tender center, like a almost like a marsh, you know, really marshmallowy. And they can, you know, wrap it in armor or barbed wire or something really defensive in order to protect it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like other people, you know, eight still want to be in relationships, and relationships are space for softness and feelings and. We don't always need protection in the way an eight might read that we need protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they can be very quick to act when really we might need them to, you know, sort of just listen. And so eights don't necessarily realize how they can be intimidating. And they often get labeled as bullies, even if they're, you know, often bullied themselves. And so it can be a really difficult space for eights to figure out. And they often, you know, when I speak to eights, they've had this feedback their whole lives. You know, you're too much, you're too angry, you're too big. And one guy was like, I've gotten that feedback, you know, but this is just who I am, you know? And I can see how even this eight felt misunderstood and not seen because people weren't able to meet him in his energy. You know, we keep asking the eights to step down, but sometimes we need to step up to the eight in terms of staying grounded and being more confrontational and being more direct and staying in our energy. And so, yes, for eights, part of the work is to take care of yourself. So eights can be so busy doing and protecting that they forget to eat and sleep and exercise and just generally do self-care. Um, and so it's 
enabling them to start taking care of themselves and slowing down that impulse to action. So allowing for a little bit of analysis mm-hmm. or, you know, pause before taking action um, and to get better at sharing those, those vulnerable side of themselves. You know, in the workplace it can be just, you know, saying, yes, I really struggled with that too, or I was really confused by that. It's realizing that actually our vulnerability makes us strong. Yeah. And it's inherent in every single human. I think that's what makes us human. That's what makes us sentient and alive. I think that's just a beautiful part in life. And vulnerability is something I've really just become so aware of. And I I try to focus on that when I am really just, you know, opening up to someone that I'm really close to or someone that I've just met and I'm building that relationship with. Because relationships, love, care, they cannot exist without that vulnerability. Uh, and I think it was just so powerful. And just seeing that every single person, every single being around us is has that vulnerability. You know, they have that and it is inherent. And yeah, just embracing that, I think, can just bring about so much more kindness and so much more understanding. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I do love about the Enneagram is it helps us touch into that compassion for other people and see them as they would like to be seen. And sometimes just being seen is a healing act in itself. Absolutely. So the last type is the nine and they are very, you know, affable and friendly and accepting and they don't like to rock the boat and can be very avoidant of conflict because they don't want to be separate from people. There is a sense of like, I want things to be comfortable. And the challenge here, this paradox, this trap, is that staying comfortable creates discomfort. Avoiding conflict creates conflict. So if you, if there's things you're holding back and not saying, then eventually they're going to come out eventually, you know, unless there's create there's space in a relationship or a friendship to share these things, then conflict will eventually arise. And so, well, you know, one of nine's challenges is that as a kid, they always felt overlooked or invisible in some way. And so their coping strategy was to just trying to be harmonious, um, to not necessarily, you know, stand out too much. And they can be, and when they're feeling put upon or when they feel like they're being told what to do, they can be very passive resistant or passive aggressive, you know, aggressive um, saying yes or indicating yes with a smile or a nod, but really meaning I have no plan on doing that whatsoever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because there's, they can't be, they're struggling to be assertive or direct, you know, direct. So they're finding another way to express their preferences. Mm-hmm. And so really that desire to maintain harmony can really undermine, you know, because nines want to be connected to other people. You know, this is the part of childhood where you believe you are your mother. You know, you are so connected, you think you are one. Um, and so nines often had challenges with that initial separation stage, you know, as as a baby. And so they don't want to be separated. And yet by trying to maintain connection by not creating any conflict or not saying what you want or what your preferences are, then you do naturally push people away because as adults in relationships, we also want to know what the other person likes. You know, we don't want to just be the one choosing where we're going to go for dinner every night. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I think maybe they would also struggle in creating those boundaries for themselves and they're not able to express themselves fully or they have that fear of you know if I do then I will lose that relationship or that person will end up distancing from me in some form yeah that's that fear so nines need to learn how to express their needs directly to identify what's important to them and pursue it and uh, be able to take a position take a stand and share it and it can be very helpful when they start to notice their own passive resistance or passive aggressive behaviors and pause to look, well, what is important to me right now that I'm not saying that the other person isn't realizing like what, what's happening in this dynamic. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Samantha, for really condensing that as much as possible because the Enneagram is just so, so complex and the paradox in itself is again, as you can see, is just very complex for each type. But if I just do sort of wrap up um, the episode, I think the paradox in itself is symbolic of life and the complexity of life. And I think in itself, it's very powerful to help different types understand the sort of traps that they are within and how they can overcome that gradually. But how can we sort of conceptualize the paradox in a way that isn't so, isn't too simplistic or in a way that can actually retain the complexity of life? Some people could argue that isn't life itself a paradox? (laughs) You know, you have these sort of 
conflicts going on and is it possible to live healthily within these? Yeah, that's a really great question because, you know, life is filled with paradoxes. And I think one of the challenges is really starting to see when we're stuck in a paradox and being able to work with it. I think that happens the most when we are complaining or saying how frustrated we are about a situation, how that situation never changes. And yet the situation is changing, we're not changing. And so when we can see the set of beliefs we're stuck in that we think are opposite, um, but might not actually be opposite, that we can find a way for those beliefs to work together, we can start to open up or expand our awareness for what's happening in the situation. Because often our first default is to complain or blame other people rather than to see how we might be contributing to the situation even unconsciously. And I, when I say those sort of things, I think about the people who have never been happy in their career. You know, whatever job they're in, whatever workplace, they're, they're not happy. And I always start to wonder, well, one or two jobs is, is one thing, but the third and the fourth there is something about how we're interacting in that situation that is contributing to that dissatisfaction. And so it's starting to pause and see how am I contributing to the situation? You know, what are my expectations? How am I, you know, contributing to those not being met? Can I let go of those expectations? What am I attached to in this situation? What am I trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. What am I not aware that I'm trying to achieve? It can be really hard to pull some of these um unconscious pieces into our awareness because they are unconscious for a reason. And so that's where it can be really helpful to get a coach or a mentor or a therapist to help us start to see these patterns. But these patterns are there and we just don't always realize how they're contributing to the way our life is going and whether we're satisfied by that or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that way paradoxes really just open that door for deeper work and understanding you are within these traps there are certain things that you are doing which are not you know sort of helping you overcome that and to essentially get whatever you want within a relationship or you know if there's a goal that you're working towards I think paradoxes in that way really just help in open your eyes like you said you know when you realize that oh okay I'm doing this when you're with a friend who is a different type Think that way it really just helps you identify that oh okay I am doing something that could be causing distress or causing pain to someone else and how that can essentially be limiting you as a person as well and it's not just always you know how is the other person responding how is that affecting you and your development I think that's yeah I think that really just helps you and address all of these issues together right yeah and sometimes we hold these beliefs about ourselves that can be coming from our personality rather than to to being true in reality. So those beliefs might be, I'm not attractive or uh, people don't like me or, you know, whatever it is, there's a whole list of them. They can be generated based on the personality defensive system rather than something that's actually realistic in in real life. I think you mentioned for one of the types, just sort of drawing that line between what exists and what is imagined. And I think, yeah, in in that way, it can really help us break yeah. out of that and to sort of overthink. I think a lot of people do suffer from that, you know, overthinking particular emotions or situation rather than actually stepping back and thinking, oh, okay, what is the actual, you know, what is the reality here? What is What is that issue that I'm actually facing? And that actually helps. I mean, it, you can overcome that in a way by just focusing on communicating. I think Mm. communication is just so important. And if you don't learn how to do that as a child, then you do struggle to do that as an adult. Even though most people think to be more mature is to communicate and you just somehow magically get that as you transition into adulthood. And that is not the case. You see communication issues in so many adults. Um, We see that in our parents. We see that within ourselves as we become adults and I think communication in itself is just like, that's just the most important step that we do need to work towards. I can solve so many, so many issues, so many relationship problems as well. And we can't learn what our parents don't know. Yeah. You know, or our teachers don't know. And so often we learn communication skills in therapy or in coaching where that's what one of the you know, the primary focus is even whether we realize it or not, you know, we, we heal in relationship with others. And one of those things is learning how yep. to communicate 
in a healthy way. And we often, you know, do that with people who have already learned how to communicate. And often that isn't our parents. You know, our parents haven't necessarily learned how to communicate. And so we have to go and find those skills elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Samantha, for these two beautiful episodes. And thank you so much for actually just breaking down something that is just so complex. I'm really, really grateful. I'm sure the listeners are very grateful that you were able to break that down for us and provide so much insight within just, you know, like an hour or so. That is very difficult to do. So thank you so much for always just offering your time and your energy to this space. And I'm very grateful to have met you and to also just have created these episodes to have built my understanding of the Enneagram and just how to embrace the complexity in life. Because that's something that we are trying to understand, but at the same time, just understanding that, you know, this is a part of life and we are all just working together in in some way, you know, like you said, working in relationship to overcome these issues for ourselves, but also for each other, you know, our loved ones, but people who are, you know, we're just starting to build those relationships with. So I think in itself is just a beautiful tool, the Enneagram. And yeah, just thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on it um, within these two episodes. And I really do hope that listeners understand a bit more about it and also try to just engage in it as well with a practitioner and just explore it also visit your website and yeah I think I'm just so happy (laughs) to have done these two episodes with you thank you so much thank you so much it's been it's been wonderful being here to discuss the Enneagram in a way that I don't often see other people doing you know we're talking about healing and you know paradoxes and it's been great to go deeper into the complexity with you so thank you Thank you for listening to the Minds Full of Everything podcast. Please subscribe to and rate the podcast on any podcast platform and connect to the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Do remember to listen to the previous episode with Samantha for a more comprehensive insight to the Enneagram and connect with Samantha at individuo.life. Visit mindfuloveverything.com for full episode resources and episode archives.